Thank you, Ken. I don't know if you know this, um, but we live in a fallen world. Hopefully for all of you, this is not shocking news. If for some reason it is, spend a few moments on social media. Or maybe even go old school and watch the 10 o'clock news. You don't have to live very long in this world to know we live in a fallen world of selfishness, rebellion, broken hearts, broken relationships, broken governments, broken leadership, broken fellowship. And we know according to Romans 8, in addressing this broken world, that the physical world itself is also in the category of fallen. As it says in verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And in verse 21, it also says that the creation is in bondage to corruption. The very world world itself is held in captivity to corruption. We not only have things like destroyed relationships, hatred and murder, but we also have things like disease and plagues and famines and the like. But we also know from Scripture that God has a plan to redeem the world. In those same two verses in Romans 8, it does say, quote, the creation was subjected to futility by God, but God did it in hope, as it says there at the end of verse 20. And he did this in hope because verse 21 says that the creation itself will be free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And though the world is chained to corruption, it will one day be free. And so notice here also in verse 21, it says that when creation is set free from its fallenness, it also says that creation will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In other words, God also has a plan to redeem humans. In fact, Romans 8 goes on to say in verses 23 and 24, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. And so, in and through Christ, who is kind of the, kind of the keystone of God's plan for redeeming the world, we will one day have a complete redemption. Our bodies will be perfect. Our minds will be perfect. Our spirits will be perfect. And this is God's plan. God longs to redeem the world from its corruption, and He is actively doing so throughout all of Scripture. We see many of those elements here also in the story of Joseph. In fact, you kind of have the whole gambit of it. You have, uh, on the human level, you have the jealousy of the brothers of Joseph planning to kill him, throw him in a pit. The plan gets tweaked a little bit. 
And so into kind of instead of just killing him, we just throw him in the pit, and then we uh, and then these caravan comes by, and they said, "Hey, let's make some money." And so you got some greed going on there, and that sort of thing, and they sell him into slavery. Then you have the many uh, advances from Potiphar's wife, who is you know adulterous in her actions. And then you have Joseph, who uh, is blamed and accused by Potiphar's wife and is thrown in prison unjustly. But you also have some of those physical characteristics of the fall. You have this famine that is stretching at least from Egypt all the way up into Canaan. And so we are in chapter 43 this morning, a lot of information to cover. And though it is not absent from the other chapters, we really kind of start to see God's redemption of Joseph and his brothers accelerate in this chapter. And so we're going to kind of walk through the chapter, pointing out the highlights, and then we will kind of land the plane with some final points on how this chapter really helps us understand what it means to be in God's plan to redeem the world. And so our first point that we're looking at is this, kind of, kind of we're going to look in verses 1 through 15 at being driven back to Egypt. And so the first thing we have there, letter number A, is this, Jacob surrendering to God. So verses 1 through 6 talk about, you know, this, this uh, hey, we're out of food. Jacob says kind of this casual statement of, go get us some food, as if there's not some sort of arrangement that's going to rip his heart out. So we see kind of Jacob doesn't either realize or he's just forgotten this kind of thing. They finish off the grain, they got from Egypt, and he just kind of casually says, go and buy us some food, as if it were that simple. Load up some money, hop on the donkeys, see you in a couple of weeks. And perhaps he might have forgotten, or maybe he just is in denial, either, either way fits, but he has forgotten that they need to take Benjamin with them. So Judah reminds him, he says, the man solemnly warned us, saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Now Jacob realizes he's in a pickle. And rather than eating his way out of that pickle, he sulks. How many of you have ever done that? You're in a difficult time, and all you want to do is just gripe. You you, you want to complain. We kind of understand Jacob's situation. He sulks. He says in this verse, why, and I love how Ken read this, why do you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? And you really see Jacob's kind of his self-centeredness here in this situation. This is really, in a sense, not about Benjamin. It's about Benjamin in relation to Jacob. Or he would have said, why have you threatened the life of your brother? No, he says, why have you done this to me? And so while he sulks, we flip to Judah, and we kind of start to see how God is redeeming Judah. So letter number B is Judah sacrifices himself. And so in verses 8 and 9 it says, And Judah said to Israel, his father, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge for his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and send him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. And so Judah's words are very important, and here's why. So if you have a, have a flipper in your hands, if you're flipping your Bible or scroll with your thumb or something like that, let's go back to chapter 37. 
And we're going to be looking at verses 23 through 28. And this is why what Judah said is truly important. So if you follow along, let's read verses 23 through 28. It says, So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him in a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brothers and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother in our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then the Midianite traders passed by, and they drew up jo Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. So who proposed the plan to sell Joseph into slavery? Judah. It was Judah who did this. Why did he do it? Starts with an M, ends with an unny. Money. Very good. He might have had a, a small touch of compassion. He does say, let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. But I really think they're just scooting him along because he also, you know, basically says, what profit is there in killing this guy? Come, let us sell him. And so for money, Judah carelessly sells his brother like he would an ox. But the Judah of chapter 43 is quite different, isn't he? Judah takes full responsibility for Benjamin. He says, send the boy with me, which basically means he will be under my care. He goes on to say, I will pledge of his safety, in other words, or I will be a pledge of his safety. In other words, if he is harmed, then harm me. He goes on to say, from my hand you shall require him. In other words, I am substituting myself for him. And then he says, let me bear the blame forever. In other words, Judah is essentially cursing himself with eternal guilt if Benjamin is harmed. This is a serious pledge. He says, ah, it's Judah, he's this and he's that. Well, all we have are his words here. And these are not the words of, of selfish Judah who literally as they're kind of sitting down, it's amazing, they're sitting down to a meal, and if Joseph is conscious, they're hearing his cries for help from the pit. Very callous heart. Not to mention the, the fiasco that we kind of skipped in previous chapters with his daughter-in-law. He is not a stellar citizen. And yet he lays himself down for, for Benjamin. And so the pledge must have worked because it moves to, to Jacob saying, let them go. So letter number C is we're back to Jacob surrendering to God. And here we kind of see the, the completion of Jacob surrendering to God. First of all, he says in verse 11, he says, then their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bag, carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you, carry back you the money, carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise, go 
again to the man. Jacob knows what it's like to smooth things over with a gift. If you kind of remember Jacob's story, remember he was returning back to his homeland from uh, gaining two wives and, and, and you know, serving his father-in-law or his uncle uncle, sorry, serving his uncle in that situation. He was coming back, and he knew he had a certain brother that probably wanted to kill him because he stole his birthright, and he was, you know, and, and, and those kinds of things. And so what does he do? He sends lots of livestock, you know, ahead with some servants, and so that if Esau shows up, and he says, where is your master? They say, oh, these are all yours. And of course, Esau would hopefully be smoothed over and would say, okay, I I forgive the guy. Where is he? And so this is probably the motivation behind this gift that they were sending to Joseph. Smooth things over so that they can get Simeon, protect Benjamin, and get some food. So up to this point, there's, there's not much evidence up to this point that, that Jacob was putting his trust in God. Rather, he was kind of either trusting in Judah's pledge. He said, okay, I'll let him go because you have sacrificed yourself for him or something like that. Or he might be trusting in this gift. He might be saying, oh, look at all this stuff that we're taking to him. That's definitely going to get us back together as a family and eating together. But then he says in verse 14 this statement. He says, may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. This is not just Jacob giving well wishes to his sons. First of all, he uses this term, God Almighty. El Shaddai is the term in Hebrew, and it's the name of God used for himself when he revealed himself to Abraham. Every time El Shaddai was used, it had to do with God's faithfulness and his blessings. And so he's saying, may El Shaddai, the faithful God, the God who blesses, the God who is kind, the God who is is loyal to his people, grant you mercy before the man. And so Jacob is, is really making the turn and saying that God Almighty, El Shaddai, is his trust. He is saying to his sons that they will not receive mercy from Joseph, Joseph, excuse me, unless God grants it and God is faithful to do so. And Jacob's final statement kind of seals the deal. At the end of verse 14, he says, And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. That is a sad statement. That is a sad, sad statement. But it is a sign that he was now fully resigned to the will of God. God is faithful. But if he somehow shows his faithfulness by granting me great loss, then so be it. Point number two, verses 16 through 25, we're going to look at the blessing before dinner. Okay, and so the blessing before dinner. The brothers make it to Egypt and find themselves immediately escorted to Joseph's home. Verse 18 says the brothers, quote, were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And this, again, is is understandable because first there were probably thousands of people there in line waiting to get grain. You know, all the way up to Canaan, there's probably hundreds and hundreds of people in this line to get grain as it's being distributed. And all of a sudden, some officials and maybe some soldiers come up and say, you there, come with us. 
Remember when you were in the lunch line at school? What conclusion would you make if a teacher or a principal came up and said, you there, come with me? What would be the conclusion? Oh, they're going to give me an award. Anyone think that? What would you think? You're in trouble. And everyone else around you would know it. So you kind of, you know, you kind of get the sad, you know, sulking look and you kind of walk with the principal. And everyone in that line is going, ooh. So it's easy to understand why these guys were afraid. But the second reason we know they were afraid is it was common knowledge that Egyptian officials had private dungeons in their home. Now remember, they already had one brother in prison because of this man, Joseph. And now they're in the house of that man, Joseph, you know, who probably had a basement dungeon waiting for them. And the brothers, though they had every reason to be afraid, really showed no evidence that they remembered or trusted in the prayer prayed over them by their father before they left. I mean, the passage does not say that though they were frightened, they believed El Shaddai. And he was able to give them the, the mercy that they needed to have from this man. That's, that's not what's being said here. It just says they were afraid, and they start to kind of scramble around and try to figure out, why is this happening to us? And so they said, the money, the money, the money, oh yeah. And so the first chance they get, they try to defend themselves. And when they do, despite their doubts, they receive the first of what would be two shocks to their system in this particular chapter. They give their defense to Joseph's servant, probably fully expecting prison, probably thinking they'll just go, ah, you stole from us, go to jail. And the servant says to them in verse 23, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure into your sack. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. That word peace, we of course know in the Hebrew is shalom. Kind of means total well-being. It's not just peace like, uh, you know, hey, we can shake hands or something like that. It has to do with the whole self. It has to do with total well-being. Pastor Kent Hughes says the Hebrew-speaking steward had responded, shalom lachem, which means peace to you. The, it's a traditional Hebrew greeting for receiving guests. It meant that the arriving guests were received in concrete terms of peace and security. But can you imagine the shock? The brothers met this particular situation with fear, with distrust, and with a kind of a readiness to be arrested. But they were met with pure peace, pure mercy, a blessing of money, and zero threat of being thrown into prison. And I love how verse 23 ends with, then he brought Simon out, or Simeon out to them. This was a huge step of redemption. The brothers were now together. It's almost kind of a completion kind of thing. Jacob's prayer that the faithful God would grant them mercy before the man up to this point was answered with a yes. Which brings us to point number three. The test at dinner. The test at dinner, verses 26 through 34. Joseph comes home, 
He asked them some of the same question, how's your dad? Is he in good health? Receiving even more confirmation from that dream he had a while back that his brothers would be bowing before him. Here they're bowing before him, and then they fall on their faces before him. He then sees Benjamin and confirms it's him. Is this your brother? We then receive kind of more, con- more kind of confirmation that God Almighty is providing these brothers mercy before this uh, man as Joseph is kind of overwhelmed. It says his compassion grew warm. That's kind of an overwhelming compassion. The same word, compassion here, is the same word for mercy in the previous prayer of Jacob. And so he becomes overwhelmed with compassion for his brother, so he runs out and weeps, regains his composure, cleans himself up, comes back into the room and says, serve the food. And now the second shocking moment for the brothers. The Egyptians could not sit with the Hebrews. We all kind of chuckled when, we kind of, when, when Ken read that. Um, but, but, but notice there's all kinds of preferences going on here. There's all kinds of preferential treatment. Partiality is overflowing. The Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews because it was an abomination. But notice that Joseph eats by himself. He couldn't sit with the servants. He couldn't sit with fellow Egyptians because he was a, an official. But when the brothers are seated, Joseph seats them from oldest to youngest. As it says in verse 33, the the men looked at one another in amazement, and it really doesn't give a reason why. Probably they were thinking, you know, how does this guy know our birth order? There's no mention of them trying to figure it out either, which kind of makes me think they were just ordinary dudes. I mean, think about it. You know, amazed at one moment and then put some meat in front of their faces and it's gone. I mean, they're like, how does this guy know our birth order? Oh, look, ribs. Num, 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 num. You know, that's probably what's happening here. It's not, you know, a lot of deep thought, deep thinkers here, just a bunch of dudes, a bunch of, you know, goat herders that, uh, you know, got themselves a steak. Sorry, guys, didn't mean to insult you there. But, but Joseph kind of seated them in this way for a specific test. He wanted to see how they would react if special treatment was given to his little brother. It is an understatement to say that the older brothers didn't do so well with Joseph in the special treatment department. It's an altogether different kind of special treatment that they did with Joseph. So as they are eating... As verse 34 says, portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, and this would have been like the really good food, you know, the really well-prepared and, and, and safe food and, and that sort of thing. It was kind of the king's food, and so it was the best. And five times as much was given to Benjamin. So, so an obvious amount of, of extra food was set before Benjamin. There was no, uh, you know, Simeon kind of looks over and said, did he get extra mashed potatoes? It's like he got extra mashed potatoes. And you can almost kind of see Joseph peeking over each time a portion was delivered to the table. He's kind of maybe thinking, will they sneer? Will they say some rude comments to their brother here? Will they shove him over and take some of his food? If it were available to them, would they pick him up and throw him into a pit? 
And what does verse 34 say was their reaction to Benjamin's extra portions. It says, and this is the end of the chapter, it says, and they drank and were merry with him. In that moment, they had passed the test, and we are now at the end of the chapter. And as was said toward the beginning of this message, we, we really start to see, I mean, you really start to see kind of God's redemption of Joseph and his brothers accelerate here. If all of what is happening in chapter 43 happened in one day, this would be labeled a very good day. Which brings us to the final point. We're going to land the plane with three lessons on being actively involved in God's plan of redeeming the world. That's almost a puritanical title there, I I apologize. Uh, I think the Puritans might have added 40 more words, but there's, there, there, there you go. Lessons on being actively involved in God's plan of redeeming the world. Here's number one lesson that we can get from this chapter. If you will be actively involved in God's plan of redeeming the world, you must be ready for the long haul. Kind of a southern term, but you must be ready for the long haul. You know, often as Americans, we, we think redemption should happen overnight. Like ordering a pizza and having it delivered. But that's not reality. Chapter 43 did not happen in one day. This was a matter of weeks and months and years. We're not just talking about travel. I mean, the amazing thing here is, is God is, is, is in this situation, this, this long period of time, God in this situation is not wringing his hands. I mean, does it strike you as strange that at the beginning, the beginning of this chapter, it says that they went through the food they had received from Egypt before considering going back, while they had a brother in an Egyptian dungeon? I mean, isn't that strange? What do we do next? Do we need to get a little army together? Do we need to go back? Do we need to take a lot of money to kind of bribe to get our brother back? No, no, let's eat. And let's finish what we ate, which is probably fairly substantial. I don't know if it took weeks or months or something like that, but it took some time. But in this, there is no evidence that God is kind of pacing the floor saying, you know, why don't they hurry up? In fact, the exact opposite seems to be portrayed here, that they are operating literally on God's time clock, because you know that they had to reach the end of that food before Jacob could be cornered into having to make a decision so that God would work tremendously on his heart. And not to jump ahead in great detail, but in chapter 50, after they are reunited and kind of reunited and and things seem to be going well. Joseph and his dad are reunited and they're probably having sweet fellowship together. But by chapter 50, Jacob dies. And again, the brothers in that situation are suspicious of Joseph that, that, that since their father died, he was now going to get his revenge. Now the dad's dead. Joseph has no way of doing anything, but he's going to kill us. And so here we go again. If you decide to be actively involved in God's plan, be ready for a long haul. You are a sinner dealing with other sinners, and most importantly, you are on God's time clock. Be ready for resurfacing pain. 
Be ready for distrust. Be ready for foolish and sinful choices and long-term consequences. Be ready for many, many moments where your resolve will be tested. I got friends. They're in a mess. I'm going to go over and share five words and it'll be cleaned right up again. You are not ready to be involved actively in God's plan of redemption if that's your attitude. You're not. It is a long haul. Point number two. If you will be actively involved in God's plan of redeeming the world, here it is, you must be willing to be worked on yourself. The call to join God in this plan is not the calling of some holy warriors to, you know, execute the arm of justice of God's, you know, wrath, because as holy warriors, they seem to have it all together. I mean, we have all, listen folks, we kind of chuckle when I started at the beginning saying, hey, no new news, but uh, we live in a fallen world. The reason we chuckle at that is number one, we know. And number two, we're responsible. We have all contributed to this fallen world. And if we are currently in a broken situation that needs redemption, there's a 99.7% chance that we had something to do with it. On some level, in some way, maybe not at the beginning, but at some point, we had something to do with it. That's why that argument that that says, uh, you don't understand what this person has done to me doesn't quite fit after careful analysis. I mean, other than Joseph, Jacob really, other than showing way too much favoritism towards a son that started a domino effect of, of, of things, but other than that, Jacob really is victim number two in this scenario. And other than that favoritism, you know, he really had been sinned against. He lost his beloved son. He had another son unjustly held in Egypt, and he is about to lose another beloved son. You might think, why is God dealing with him? Let's get back to the real criminals. Let's get back to these brothers. But Jacob had a trusting in God issue that God needed to redeem. We live in a fallen world, and by God's grace, we want to make this world better by leading it to Christ, but we need to be led towards Christ as well. Folks, there will always be something about our situation that needs redemption, but we need to understand that there will always be something about us that also needs redemption. Being willing to be worked on ourselves. God, I think I can help so-and-so with their situation, or God, I'm in a mess and I need redemption in my situation, but God, will you please, whatever it takes, work on me in this situation, however I've contributed to the sin, to the, to the mess, to the, the, the separation, to the destruction of your precious world, to, to whatever, however I've contributed to this, please work on me. Folks, if that is your attitude, and if you're ready to do that, then God's redeeming the world happens. But if you're like, God, work on them, change them, work on them, shift them, change, you know, do whatever you need to do in so-and-so's life, God might do that. 
Because so-and-so does need redemption. They have done terrible things. They have done horrible things. They have done inexcusable things. They need to repent. So do we. With some, maybe not same sin, but some attitude of the heart. Some word spoken, something. Finally, number three. If you will be actively involved in God's plan of redeeming the world, then mercy is the key. If we consider getting involved in God's cause of redemption as our opportunity to administer justice and wrath, then that's just wrongheaded. Say, so what about opportunities for correction? We will and should and ought to take advantages of opportunities to offer correction, to speak truth to others who might not be living in truth, to share the things that brings heavy conviction to a person's heart. We, we ought to be doing that if it's necessary, but, but it must all be couched in mercy. Because in, in, in reality, folks, we, we can greatly empathize with these brothers in that first shock moment in Joseph's house, can't we? We can, we can greatly empathize with these brothers in that first shock moment that they went through. Because like them, you know, they met with the situation with fear and distrust and that sort of thing. We meet life with fear, with doubt and distrust. We, we meet life with, life with maybe not a, a readiness to be arrested and put into a dungeon, but we do meet life with a readiness to be judged by God. And we were met, just like these brothers, with pure peace, pure mercy, the promise of eternal blessings, and zero threat of being thrown into hell. Going back to Romans 8, verse 1, magnificent verse. If you have it memorized, go ahead and say it with me. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or if it's up on the screen. Think about that. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it was only through this great mercy that we can say, now I am redeemed. Not, I am redeemed because so-and-so got what's coming to them. Not, I am redeemed because so-and-so, you know, committed all these horrible things and now they're on the floor crying at my feet. I'm redeemed. They will be redeemed. This world will be redeemed when it is in Christ Jesus. It's amazing. We... We stand before our judge, and like the brothers, the only thing we hear is peace to you. The only thing we hear from our judge, much like these brothers who heard from the representative of Joseph, the only thing we hear is peace to you. We join God in redeeming the world by showing the world the great mercy by which we have been redeemed. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word and your precious truth, Lord. God, I pray for our folks this morning. I pray for myself this morning. Lord, may we have 
these three things in mind as we obediently join you in seeking to redeem the world for your glory. Redeem the world because you command us to, but to redeem the world because it brings us great joy to serve you as our King and Savior. Lord, may we not take up the sword thinking we are the ministers of justice, Lord. But Lord, may we humbly seek as we seek to correct others, as we seek to encourage others, Lord, as we seek to make things that are wrong right, Lord, may we be open to the correction of others, Lord. May we be open to you molding and shaping us. We who are in desperate need of daily mercy as well, may you mold and shape us into the image of your Son. God, we thank you that, that, that you have this multifaceted approach to redemption. Lord, that you enter a situation and, and, and you, it's obvious we would come to the conclusion, yeah, deal with the brothers, yeah, deal with the relationship they have with Joseph, deal with the problem. And yet, Lord, you see all of the problems and you deal with the Jacobs. Lord, you, you deal with other people that are involved in this in such a way, Lord, that true redemption happens to, to, to so many others than, than we could ever imagine. So, God, we ask that you would. Lord, if there's someone here in need of redemption, Lord, first and foremost, their own soul, Lord, if they don't, if they have not been met by, by great mercy, Lord, their, their attitude is still kind of like these brothers when it comes to you, that when they think of you, they only think that they are guilty. They only think that they are condemned. They only think that if they were to ever stand before your great throne, that they would be cast into hell. Lord, help them to understand that they can receive mercy. They can hear you say peace to you. And so I pray that this morning they would trust in you and they would receive the forgiveness of sins and they would confess their sins to you, Lord, and that they would know you as king. Know you as that great God who not only rules and reigns, but also loves. Lord, if there's somebody here that's in a situation, a broken relationship, maybe they're struggling with this fallen world because they have a disease or some kind of sickness. Oh God, I pray that you would use them to bring your redemption to that situation however you desire to do so. Lord, may they, may they be an agent of God to turn things around for your glory. So Lord, we pray that you will just do what only you can do. Lord, the, the heart is your domain. The heart is where you can only do things. And so we pray and ask that you will do things in our hearts this morning that only you can do so that we might be the people that you've called us to be. And I pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.